Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 21st, 2021. I'm going to have another show about truth and media and talking to one another. We've been doing this too often. Um, maybe we can really learn to talk to one another if indeed we do talk to one another. Uh, last week, I had Joseph Weisberg on the show. He's a, a critic, I think, of much of the American coverage of the Ukrainian war. He suggests that there's a lot of similarities between Bush's invasion of Iraq and Putin's invasion of Ukraine in the sense that you had state media propaganda convincing people of lies. I'm not sure it's entirely true, but it's an interesting idea. There's certainly a lot of concerns about propaganda, the banning of certain voices in America, both on the left and the right. Chris Hedges, a very articulate and interesting left-wing journalist, an American gadfly, if ever there was a gadfly, is arguing that there is a new breed of what he calls American commissars. Apparently, he's had his six-year archive of RT America, which is a, a Russian media network taken down by YouTube. Surprise, surprise. Meanwhile, on the other side... Uh, Alex Jones is in the news again. He's going bankrupt. He's reached out to the Justice Department. Um, so what are we supposed to do about it? And meanwhile, lots of concern in the center or liberal center. Uh, influential piece last week from Jonathan Haidt uh, in The Atlantic talking about America becoming uh, a tower of Babel. Uh, he titles his piece, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And he talks about the way in which we live in tribes where quite literally unable to talk to one another. Um, it's all good background for my guest today, uh, Mickey Huff. I think it'd be fair to call Mickey uh, uh, a gadfly on the left but I'm not sure he's necessarily arguing this from a progressive leftist position. He's very much of a, a free speech advocate in America. He has a new book out, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. He's joining us from just up the road near California. Uh, Mickey, welcome that. Subtitle sounds a bit painful. Do we really have to go in for conflict management? You sound like a management theorist. Yeah, that I'm certainly not. By the way, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate it and uh, have a lot of thoughts about the last few minutes of everything that you've been saying. And of course, that's been reflected in a lot of our work over the years, both in this book, uh, the previous book on City Lights, United States, A Distraction that I also did with Nolan Higdon. And then, of course, the work we do at Project Censored that addresses all these things. So um, right. Yeah, you're right about, about the subtitle. You're right about the subtitle. Uh, uh, this is a textbook from Rutledge. The price isn't friendly. Uh, the great ironies of uh, academic texts is that people off don't really get paid to write them. They're too expensive to buy, and so people yeah, the don't get them. The hardbacks, $128, Mickey. Yeah, That's I've got two of them here. I should sell them, and we could go out and have dinner. Um, <laughs> uh, I had two free ones there from the, from the Rutledge. 
But look, the re- the real issue here is to is in, just to cut to the prong. Yes, free speech. Yes, free press. Um, yes, we have too much censorship, and we need to address that. But one of the other prongs of the things that we've been uh, dealing with for years, whether it's at the project or my other work, um, is the the importance of where is education in in this uh, in this whole loop of, of issues that you just described moments ago? What are we teaching people? What are we not teaching people? Um, in other words, what we have is a we need a multi pronged, simultaneous kind of approach to address a lot of the interconnected problems and challenges we have. In other in other words, what good is a book like this if people don't read it, don't know about it, can't buy it? Um, what good is a book like this if we have schools where the curriculum is pre-established to not include this very topic, this connect collection of topics in the first place? We don't teach critical media literacy in the United States any more than we act- actively teach civic engagement. And uh, I see the connection of those two as a big part of the antidote to the many conundrums that you posed at the outset of the program here today. Mickey, I wonder if the uh, the YouTube or the gr- or the Facebook gremlins are interfering in this. You might check your audio. You're a little crackly. I'm not sure whether you, you want to be at least technically crackly. You can be intellectually crackly. <laughs> Um, I don't know. If, do, do, does it sound to you a little crackly? I, I don't know what. Um, I'm not having any issues at this end, and you sound fine to me, so I'm good. not sure. Well, maybe. we'll continue, and if our if our listeners complain about your crackliness, you can, can you can argue they're either too far on the left or the right. Is this um, <laughs> Mickey? Is this a problem? As I said at the beginning, I want to be clear: you are traditionally a left wing journalist, for better or worse. Uh, probably I am certainly for more on the left than on the right. But is this a problem as much on the left as on the right? Should we be as much concerned with the treatment of Alex Jones as, as, as the treatment of Chris Hedges? Yes and no. Um, yes, we should be concerned, but maybe people are for different reasons. Um, and I think there's different degrees of censorship and cancellation that, that is afoot on the right um, that may, uh, it takes on uh, maybe different avenues. But uh, our position at Project Censored and the position we've taken in, in a number of our books is we're always uh, very leery of any censors, right? And you know, we start from the premise, you know, no censors, K-N-O-W, no censorship, N-O. Uh, while that, that isn't a call to action, it's a call to awareness. We need to realize why are people being shut down or canceled or removed? What are they saying? What's at the root of the message that's so... Uh, purportedly dangerous that we we can't as a free society uh, purportedly hear any of this. And so um, Jones, for example, we argued a couple of years back that it was a trial balloon. The deplatforming of Alex Jones was a trial balloon to see what would the general centrist public, right? What would they say if a big character like this, controversial character, was just zapped, like disappeared in that way? What they saw is you know, collective applause. Uh, you had some even in the Republican Party kind of got to distance ourselves from the toxicity of this person. Certainly, the Democrats and neoliberals and liberals, you know, celebrated uh, this censorship of uh, uh, sort of the canceling of an Alex Jones, just like they did with Trump on Twitter. And it's interesting now to see a lot of people on the right saying like Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter and that's going to solve everything, but it's not. The problem is, is we shouldn't have these kinds of private, unaccountable media platforms that have basically captured and hijacked the public square and the free press in terms of its function in society. 
The issue with Hedges is interesting, too, because Hedges used to be an establishment journalist, Legacy Media, New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winning correspondent. The question, why then would somebody as erudite uh, and uh, wise, well, it's not about ideological agreement here either. There's plenty of room to disagree with people like Hedges uh, and others. But to not see that opinion or not to hear that work in the, in the mainstream of American journalism tells you all you need to know about the myopic nature of corporate media in the United States. And then the fact that somebody like Hedges had to go to a foreign-sponsored media outlet to have an intellectual book review show that would have been on PBS years ago at like midnight or something, right? We I mean, could have had a uh, podcast. I'm sure if he'd have gone to a network like LitHub, they might have been interested. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Well, he well, it is true because he did it for six years and nobody was picking well, it up. Well, he went to so RT, went to... but, you know, I could go to RT. I wouldn't, however much. Uh, well, you actually couldn't on. because they're gone now in the United States, number one. And number two, uh, they but were kind of selected. if they existed, I wouldn't go. Yeah, I get that. And that's your personal choice. He felt like he didn't have other places to go as viable outlets. He's, by the way, now at the Real News Network out of Baltimore, which picked him up. And the Real News Network does a lot of great community journalism, uh, free press work. Uh, They're a really good outlet. I think, again, my opinion, he's much better off there. He's way more at home there. And I'm really happy to see that he found a temporary, at least, home for what he's doing there. But the point is, is why do people, why why do we have a media ecosystem that drives these people uh, to these kinds of other sources? Why do they not have a platform uh, in the U.S. on the other uh, uh, other sort of channels, if you will? And that's, again, because of the corporate control, the hegemonic control over the media narratives in the United States. So, let, so let's, uh, let, let, let's uh, uh, Mickey, let's talk about that. Uh, you mentioned um, Elon Musk. If Musk actually successfully bought Twitter for the $46.5 billion supposedly he's offering, which at least the Wall Street Journal is reporting today. Are you saying that would be a bad thing, even if he allowed Trump and Alex Jones and Chris Hedges back on? The point is, is the point isn't Elon Musk any more than it was Dorsey or any more than it's Spotify and Rogan. The point is, is that you have private, unaccountable, big tech platforms calling the shots over what what is and isn't considered public debate or in the public interest. And that is fundamentally what's being overlooked by the corporate media in many cases in the analysis of this. And this is what we wrote about in the United States of Distraction. We get really tied up in the culture wars and the identity politics and the red and the blue and these kind of things. And we miss the overall structural problems with the system. Hedges particularly talked about Sheldon Walden's inverted totalitarianism for years as being one of the main challenges we face as sort of going all across the political spectrum. Ralph Nader's been crowing about the corporate capture and the public commons for half a century. It's still one of the key challenges that we face, and that gets lost in all of this noise about who buying what and billionaire celebrity culture. You know, like, for example, the gov- and by the way, this is censorship by proxy, so it isn't violating any First Amendment standards when Spotify decides who's on the platform or when Twitter kicks off Trump or Alex Jones. But, you know, it was Roku and DirecTV. Well, let's go back and take a look at that. Who owns Roku, for example? House, right? We're now we're back into the pocket of the military industrial complex. So we are back into that capitalist model. We are into the ownership model. And that's actually really problematic in, so in a lot did, of ways. Um, so, okay. So, so I take that point and uh, your uh, project censored reports, for example, on 
Gates giving 316, 319 million to news outlets. At what point, though, does this become a, a, a problem? And how is this connected with our failure to be able to talk to one another? So, for example, one of the more liberal newspapers, one I rely on, I consider relatively unbiased. I mean, it has an a political agenda, but I don't think it's it's particularly biased or no more biased, certainly, than the New York Times. Uh, well, those are two different statements that you just made. <laughs> well, okay, but uh, the Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. It doesn't seem to me to be any more or less biased, quote unquote, before or after Bezos's ownership. I don't understand how that's necessarily affecting uh, press openness in America. The I'm not defending the Post. I'm simply saying that the Post is the Post, whether or not it's owned by Jeff Bezos. Right. So that's, again, back to the structural problem. The problem isn't Elon Musk. The problem is Twitter and private, unaccountable companies deciding what is up for debate and discussion in the so-called public square. You're right. The Post and the Times aren't fundamentally different in the terms of their ownership. But as A.J. Liebling once quipped, you know, the, a free press belongs to those who own one, right? Paraphrasing that. And again, that's part of the challenge. But if take a look at the, the uh, take a look at the op-ed pages, take a look at the opinion pages, the editorial pages of places like Washington Post. They couldn't love billionaires more. Um, they're constantly putting in articles about why the billionaire class is going to save us and and how the billionaire class does great things. I mean, that's a total bias. Even the New York Times lead editor said one, one about two years ago, when in an interview, said we don't have a bias. And then he further went on to say that they're a free market system. They're a ne they're a neoliberal newspaper. In other words, he directly contradicted himself. Like two yeah, paragraphs. Yeah, but, but I mean, I've had Peter Goodman on the show, who wrote Davos Man, as aggressively anti-billionaire as any book. He works for the New York Times, so I don't buy that either. I, I mean, there's well, I think. Go ahead. I, I, I but but let's come back, Mickey. I, it's systemic. I it's not one Maybe person. there's a little it's bit systemic. of truth in it. It's over. Yeah, a but you of say it's time. systemic, it's systemic but you can't. Bias. Yeah, but I, I, I don't see that as much proof, certainly, as you think. But let's connect mm -hmm. supposedly the corporate control, the systemic corporate control of American media, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Westinghouse or whoever, with our failure to talk to one another. How are those connected? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, and I think that. The, one of the ways that that's connected is something that we in our United States of Distraction book. And we talked about four public vulnerabilities that, it, uh, that over a period of half a century from the 1950s and 60s in the Cold War, and it's sort of a reaction to a lot of the free speech movement and civil rights movement of the 60s, there was a lot of backlash and conservative backlash about how the term public became synonymous with problematic uh, or against a free market system. And so from the from the inception of that problem, I think you have a, a connection. And we, we talked about vulnerabilities that we are a pervasive commercial entertainment culture. So for example, most of our media is private for profit. It's infotainment, even when it's trying to inform us. That is, of yeah, course, the United States distraction. You're certainly not the first or the last person to make that argument. 
oh, no, I'm sure we're not in a long line. And Ralph Nader actually wrote the foreword to that book at City Lights. And it's a, a pretty interesting combination because he's been complaining about some of these things right. for decades. Neil, no, Neil Postman wrote the classic in 1984, Amusing Ourselves to Death. So That is right. Postman in particular. And before that, you had Chomsky and Herman with the propaganda model and manufacturing consent. Before that, you had Ben Bigdiki and the canary in the coal mine on media monopoly and the impact of media uh, ownership on public discourse. So there's a lot There's a lot of warning signs and signposts along the way. Project Censored itself was founded in 1976, talking about sort of the, the myopic views in the corporate media versus the vibrance of the free press in the alternative independent sector. So we've been arguing this for a while. But because of this hyper-commercial media system, we've become more and more hyper-partisan. We've been divided into audiences. We've also seen the neoliberal co-option and collapse of our educational system. Uh, and this has all kind of contributed to our inability to learn how to construct arguments to um, deconstruct messages that come from various media outlets. And we've become a more and more a confirmation bias kind of society. We're really ruled in a lot of ways by things like our implicit biases, by um, what's called motivated reasoning or inferred justification, that we do a mini version of critical thinking by going out and finding evidence or material that of supports what we are elected, but we don't necessarily seek out views that are remarkably different from our own. And partly a result of this is that we don't, we just don't, can't be bothered to interact with different people and different ideas. I mean, you and I just had some differences of perspective and opinion a few moments ago, and I suspect we'll have more, which I relish and I think are absolutely wonderful. And I think that's what media platforms should be modeling, not the chair-throwing Mori Povich models, but two different people with different backgrounds talking about things where they have some things in common and some differences. And how do they how do they mitigate those? How do they navigate those, those differences? And the main takeaway from Let's Agree to Disagree that Nolan Higgins and I did, we wrote sort of a best kind of textbook for how to do those things. And ultimately, we're interested in building bridges, not walls. We want to try to find ways to be critical listeners, empathetic listeners. We need to be more culturally competent, and we need to want to seek different views, and we need to want to be able to understand how we all benefit from seeing things differently, but also creating sort of this mosaic of a diverse society where you can step back from it and appreciate its beauty and its, com its complex nature, but you're not necessarily always just in the weeds looking at the one thing that you agree with. And that's all part of the practice of how we need to change our media habits, not just our media structures. So it's, it, there's, there's more to it. It's not just finger pointing with it's the corporate media only or it's this only. It's a confluence of things and a big part of it comes through ourselves with how we learn what we're learning and what we're willing to be subject to in order to become broader and deeper critical thinkers. We had, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, journalist, Seattle-based journalist, Monica Guzman on the show. She has a relatively new book out. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided time. She's, um, she's a highly spirited and interesting person. She's part of a network called Braver Angels. I'm not sure if you're familiar, Mickey, with them. Are they the kind of organization and that we need to be um, encouraging? I, on the surface of it, I would, I mean, I was very, I'm familiar with the book. I'm not, I haven't read the book. I'm familiar with it and seen reviews of it. Um, I've not, I've not navigated the website extraordinarily. I like what I see on the surface, 
But of course, devils are in details. I'd have to go in and look and see, well, what's this about? Who's funding it? Is there a board? What does it look like? What's the composition? In other words, like Nolan and I talk about, we like to practice what we teach, right? We actually try to model that. Um, you know, another really fascinating group contacted me just a week ago. That's very clearly a far right group, um, uh, a patriot type group. But the thing that caught me about the message was that this person emailed me, uh, you know, highly suspecting I came at things at different angles. But the thing that I appreciated was that they found the commonalities right away and they focused their letter and the tenor of their communication, which is part of the subtitle of this book, right? Um, about communicating. How do we communicate? How we communicate is often more important than what we think we're actually communicating. And we go through that in the textbook. Um, but I, I am going to reach out and talk to this person in particular and their group. Um, they have religious overtones and they talk about Christianity. And uh, of course, their ideas um, uh, don't necessarily always align with what mine might be. But the commonality is this. They don't like censorship. They don't like propaganda and duplicity, right? And they think we need to have a wider open media uh, landscape and ecosystem that doesn't just cater to confirmation bias, but actually has in-depth intellectual conversations, kind of like the one you have on your programs. Um, look, we even used to almost do more of this in our so-called public journalism. Remember William Buckley had firing line? He would have on Gore Vidal or Noam Chomsky. You know, we just don't really do those kind of things anymore. And we're conditioned to be at each other's throats. I'm right, you're wrong, no matter what. And I think the public turning away from corporate media and turning more and more different kinds of platforms, newer platforms or podcasts or other things is because they're tired of the same old red blue kind of divisiveness and people really are kind of hungry for dialogue. I just think that also we don't have to have great models for how to successfully do it. And I think people misconstrue arguments for fighting or hostility. And I think that we need to clarify and make a distinction between the two that Making arguments also involves listening. And, and, and this book that you mentioned from this author reminded me a lot of the philosopher Daniel Dennett that talks about, yeah, I never thought of it that yeah. way. It's interesting. One of Dennett's four points that he writes about in Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking is about how we can be active listeners. And it's really fantastic because they're really simple. And I suspect it dovetails very much with what this author was saying is that we should re-express another person's opinion so clearly uh, and vividly and fairly that they respond to us by saying, thanks, I wish I would have put it that way. You know, that's Daniel Dennett talking. He goes on so, to say um, this point. Uh, no, I, I take that point. So, um, Mickey, let's, let's use the example of Twitter. It has potential, but it clearly is problematic on lots of levels. Musk wants to buy it. I don't think you're a big fan of Musk, nor am I. Um, hate says that we've become the Tower of Babel. Um, rather than rebuilding, and he talks a lot in his piece, I don't know if you read in The Atlantic about Twitter. Yeah, um, I did. What could we do with Twitter to make it a platform, a model, a vehicle for agreeing to disagree? Is it a cultural shift? Is it a programmatic technological shift or do we do all, do we all need to just simply grow up and behave ourselves and be more open-minded no i think you just hit on four solutions that we need to try simultaneously so you know it's not either or it's both and right again i'm back to the same problem if twitter was a publicly owned entity and it was publicly funded and it, it had a public pedagogical infrastructure and it had clear goals and guidelines, and it transparently adhered to things like the Society of Professional Journalists 
code of ethics, um, then I think that we might have a model. We might have a platform. Um, but you know, Mickey, you know, some but, people might be watching this in the United Kingdom, for example, and say, oh, I wouldn't want Twitter to become like the BBC, which is controlled by left liberal journalists and incredibly intolerant. Why is state managed or owned media any more reliable, any more open than privately owned? Theoretically, and that's the key word, theoretically, it's not supposed to be ideologically politicized. It's supposed to literally be seen in the public interest, right? And when PBS and NP PBS was getting started, remember that was out of the Great Society program, right? That was in the civil rights era. That was on the heels of the free speech movement. There are a lot of ideals behind the efforts to create a truly public platform that I think we, nowadays it's drifted so far from that, it's unrecognizable. Uh, it's very much akin to the private sector. It's more like a liberal class model. It's much more akin to what you see in the New York Times or Review of Books or the Post for that matter. Uh, it skews that way, um, the educated liberal class, so to speak. Um, and there's a place for that in society. But the idea that that's the pinnacle of journalism is, is a real problem. The idea that that's representative of all people's views is, is a real problem. So democracy is a mess in practice. And so while these platforms have potential to allow lots of sorts of things to happen, algorithmically they've been designed to sort of let the crap rise to the top, right? The negativity bias is kind of really built in algorithmically. Plus there's also a lot of hidden censorious techniques and shadow banning and uh, throttling search engines. And there's a whole lot of nefarious things that are going on in these private for-profit companies that aren't interested in being in the place of, of holding the public square uh, the debate. They're interested in data harvesting. They're, you're the product, right? If you actually go and look at, at Silicon Valley and, and big tech politics, uh, it's very fiercely, uh, fiercely uh, what I would say, this is an oxymoron and a term that I have real problems with, but it's almost like more Peter Thiel's anarcho-capitalism. Um, it's, it's this extreme libertarian kind of sensibility in a lot of ways. But it also, I mean, that doesn't necessarily translate to the rights of the public or the people. It only translates for the rights of the owners and programmers. So we have a lot of challenges to face. And, yeah, and I'm not sure, though, that even Thiel would necessarily disagree with everything you're saying. Uh, in your state of the free press, I've been looking through that this morning, you have a number of the, the what you call the top 25 most censored stories um, from last year. A lot of them have to do with reporting on one kind of monopoly capitalism or another, the healthcare industry, um, the defense industry, the media industry. Ultimately, is your critique that these corporations have too much power and that they're controlling the message and they're not allowing most media to actually um, uh, report the truth about our corrosive health business or defense industry or media business? In a nutshell, yes. Uh, but what we're also arguing is that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, we're both critical and affirmative in our analysis of the media ecosystem, and particularly when it comes to corporate media, which we call it, we don't call it mainstream, uh, there's something mainstream about a handful of corporations controlling, uh, you know, these 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 allegedly in the public interest kind of platforms as a free press. But in terms of the, where, it's it's worse than just having them have their own interests. 
um, they also crowd out any other views that don't align with those interests actively as censors. And then they frame certain topics in ways that bolster one argument or one side of an equation over another. And they do it deliberately and they do it repetitively. Media outlets report truthfully and factually about important issues. Yeah, they do on occasion. Um, They do a lot of times, but they don't do it consistently. They consistently do, however, frame and choose stories that bolster their interest and suppress the uh, the public interest. And that's one of our big critiques. When the New York Do you Times think that the, Ukraine, Post, the, the war in Ukraine has been misreported in America? Wildly. It's, one, it's wildly one-sided. And by, by the way, two things can be true at the same time. Putin can be an aggressor, an oligarch, in violation of international law. The war is a travesty. Uh, it's a humanitarian nightmare. Those are all true. Uh, it was also true when it happened in Iraq. And this isn't what aboutism. Uh, this is this is literally about double standards. Right. That's uh, again, Joe Weisberg's point, which I think is an interesting one. I think it's one that should be debated, right? Even if you disagree with it, it should be something that the New York Times should be talking about. Instead, these outlets like MSNBC, Malcolm Nance just quit being a reporter. Now he put on a uniform. He's now signed up to fight with the with uh, Ukrainian uh, people in, in Ukraine, and they're now interviewing him as a news source. Do you see a problem with that? Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's end, Mickey, with some concrete ways to change our culture so that we can indeed agree to disagree, to make ourselves more tolerant, more open-minded, and more civil. What can we actually do that's doable rather than replacing all privately owned media with something else, which doesn't seem very realistic, certainly in the next year or two. What can we do? And, you know, what can individuals do? And that's why we wrote this book, right? It's because what you said is the reality, right? And a lot of folks that have been coming on, you know, have been catching on to the reality, have been turning off corporate media or going to other platforms. Sometimes they just big thing is, well, what do we do? Uh, this, this seems like it's too Herculean of a task to even address. And where do I start? So we have, um, we have a, a, the last chapter is a sort of best practices, how to, it's a what can you do moment, right? We actually have another book coming out later this year on the censored press called The Media and Me. That's kind of a similar version of this book, but it's written for young people. So it's written to be taught in schools and, and at younger ages where this really needs to start, Right. But it's never too late to do these things. And we use the word critical, right, to create a list of the things that we can do. The first is C, critical. What can we do? We need to create constructive dialogue. We need to think about the way we communicate, how we communicate. Uh, destructive dialogue is tearing things down. Yeah, now, nah, Mickey, you're beginning to sound like an annoying liberal. I mean, what does that even mean? Well, I don't know if you read the book, you'll find out. Uh, It means that there are conversation tactics. There's ways in which we can check ourselves when we're in the middle of a disagreement that increases the likelihood that we'll actually be heard if even disagreed with in the end. So these are significant. uh, And by the way, these are all widely documented in the text that these literally are best practices that come from people who are experts in a wide variety of fields, from communication, social psychology, philosophy, uh, critical thinking, curriculum development. So these, this isn't just us waxing philosophic at the pub, thinking about cool ways to be nicer to each other after we smoke a joint, right? These are actual things that we can do if we're not so well, totally... Well, if you've had enough, though, Mickey, of 
therapy talk. You don't want to hear about this anymore. You just simply want a more open culture. Is it possible? Yeah, it is possible. It is possible. And again, constructive dialogue is important because we don't see it modeled in corporate media. It's people shouting all over each other. That's not constructive. You know, we need to think about and reflect how we actually communicate with one another and what we actually sound like. Individually, we need to inquire and be critical thinkers. We need to broaden our media diets. We need to look for sources in different places where there are voices of people who we may be unfamiliar with or where we disagree with those voices. The networks have become so hyper-partisan that people tune into the one that they're familiar with or comfortable with or used to hearing. And that practice is problematic because it leads to more media silos and echo chambers than diverse uh, communication practices. Um, we also need to be aware of our history we need to be educated about some of the theories and ideas of how society is organized in order to be able to navigate it more clearly. This goes back to education, right? We need to all be media literate since media is something that affects all of our lives. Um, we need to understand what propaganda is, what censorship is. We need to understand fake news isn't just a weaponized epithet. It's actually a problem long before Donald Trump about people that control media platforms for deceptive or nefarious. That's very important to understand so that we can develop healthy skepticism, not just throw in the towel skepticism, right? The hands up, we're done, we're hooked, uh, we're over. Again, if you want to look at things like the climate crisis and these kind of things, it does kind of look like that's more of a reality. Um, in this regard, we're trying to say, look, because we couldn't talk about climate crisis, because the media refused to talk about it seriously, We've now just been fiddling while the planet's burning, right? A lot of that is because of our media ecosystem. A lot of that is because we have entirely too ideological thought that leads our discourse rather than critical or independent. Well, good stuff from Mickey Huff. I think uh, we do indeed. And I don't think anyone would disagree. I hope no one would disagree. Let's agree to disagree. A critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. I think we all need to read books like this. Uh, finally, uh, Mickey, um, can you come up with a book or two that you would strongly disagree with, but you would encourage people to read? That I would strongly disagree with, and I would, yeah, actually, um, actually, there, there is something, and I know that you said this um, uh, in before I came on. You said. Think about one of these books that you think is really important to read. Now, one that I do agree with and would suggest people read would be Victor Picard's Democracy Without Journalism. Uh, I think that book is an incredible uh, primer for what we need in a public media ecosystem. He's at UPenn Annenberg School, uh, part of the free press movement. I would think that that's very important. There's, other, there's another book I would suggest that maybe people read, and this, these are people, by the way, um, these are people that are in the media, I'm sorry, the media literacy scene. But these are people that are more in the corporate wing uh, of what we call the media literacy movement. And this is a scholar by the name of Renee Hobbs. She has a book called Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age. Um, but it really takes more of a, a, a cynical sort of CIA approach kind of in a lot of ways to media literacy tools. And it doesn't look at the, it doesn't take a critical perspective insofar as what we would argue is necessary or, or important. But I think what people like Renee Hobbs argue about what media literacy is, I think it's really important because I think the public not only needs to be aware of uh, what's happening in, in, in the media literacy movement, I think they need to understand the vibrancy of these arguments overall. 
And finally, Mickey Huff, or co-author of Let's Agree to Disagree, very much involved in activist politics and publishing uh, in, in April 2022, Mickey, and I, and I can guess your answer to this one. Who runs the world? Who's in charge? Well, I, I, I wouldn't suggest that it's a person, right? I would suggest that it's, it's, it's the central banking system. It's a combination of cohorts of the Davos class. It's the military-industrial complex married to big tech, big ag, and big pharma. That is a group of people, right? There's a couple thousand key people that are involved in those scenes that have extraordinary influence over what we call public policy. And I think my friend Peter Phillips wrote about it expertly in a book called Giants, The Global Power Elite, a few years ago on Seven Stories Press. And so I would encourage, I'd encourage your, your viewers and listeners, if they want to understand about sort of the who is the power elite C-Wright Mill style in 2022, check out Peter Phillips' book on giants.